Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning to the living church. Well, after that testimony, let's take another offering and close in a benediction. That's, that's all we need to hear. That's the whole purpose of why we're here. And uh, just am excited about that testimony of God's grace. Well, I'm, uh, my name is Roger Thompson, and I'm the senior pastor here at Berean. That's not my title. That's just a... That's just a chronological designation <laughs> that I have earned through many years. And what a privilege it is for me to open the Word of God with you this morning. And if you're able to stand, would you stand with me as we read from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? <clears throat> Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> I know an old lady. Present company accepted. <clears throat> I, know, <clears throat> I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. I know an old lady who swallowed a spider that wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. And if you know this old song, this old poem... You know that she then swallows a bird to catch the spider to catch the fly. And then she swallows a dog to catch the cat to catch the bird to catch the spider to catch the fly. And then she swallows a goat and a cow 
And finally, she swallows a horse, and she's dead, of course. (laughs) And if you want to read this morbid story to your little five-year-old, you can look into his little brown liquid eyes at the end and say, son, this is a story about progressive insanity. You know the definition of insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Or another way of saying that is if you find yourself in a deep pit, stop digging. What happens when people are desperate is that they flail. They grasp for old familiar things. They become foolish. They become increasingly irrational. And when we're sad or when we're lonely, when we're scared, we self-medicate. Like the lady who swallowed the spider to catch the fly, something unusual happens to us, something we didn't expect. And so we go to old failed remedies that we've made up on our own. And so we add regret to sorrow. We add complexity to pain. We add stupid to ignorant. Because anxiety swallows fear and fear swallows panic and panic swallows desperation and desperation swallows irrationality and then it leads to chaos and then it leads to death. This is how we often live. But Jesus comes to his disciples in this passage who are increasingly desperate. They're feeling trouble all around. There's things that are ominous that they don't like. And he's coming to us as well. To those of us who are stampeded, this week it's about race, and this week it's about justice, and next week it's about gender, and then it's about China, and then it's about global warming, and then it's about banks collapsing, and then it's about school shootings. Can you keep up? I can't keep up. We are stampeded every single day by events that are moving that are ominous, and they make us feel desperate. And that's why Jesus comes with these sure words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Surveys have shown that when people are fearful or need comfort, they turn to one of two passages in Scripture. The first one is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And then they turn to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, these words from Jesus come in a context. And I wonder where you turn in your desperation and fear. How do you self-medicate? How do you reflex and return to the things that didn't work last time, but we're going to try them again? And we wonder when we're in struggling, when we're in a struggling situation, when we're in trouble, does Jesus really care about where I am? There's an old song that some of you may know, and it grips my heart every time I hear it. It goes like this. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? When the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark 
with a nameless dread and fear. As the daylight fades into deep, dark shades, does he care enough to be near? And the chorus answers this question. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. This is not just an empty platitude that we hurl out there. This is not just a hope that we've hung on some kind of skyhook of wishfulness. This is the promise of Jesus. And we find it in this passage. Because this passage has a context that we're all familiar with. The context is trouble. (laughs) A lot of trouble. This is not a bedside story of happy thoughts. This is people in trouble. Real people with real hurts, with real fears, and real trouble. Now, if we had read chapter 12 of of the book of John, we would have discovered the triumphal entry. And for a brief moment on Palm Sunday that we celebrate today, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And there's a brief celebration There's some adulation, a brief interlude in this heaviness, and then it quickly goes away because the landscape is increasingly ominous for Jesus because Jesus is hated. There are conspiracies against him. He is reviled and slandered. And recently, in recent chapters before chapter 14, he's talking about, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. And the disciples did not understand this. They kept putting it off and putting it off. And they can't follow him. He says, you can't come with me. And they are desperate because they've staked their lives on this rabbi that they followed. They've staked their livelihoods on him. And they don't know what's going on. And in this anxiety, they feel left alone. And we see it in the passage that we just read. Just prior to this passage, Peter has stepped up and said, I will follow you to my very death. And Peter has an outsized confidence in his own strength. And he makes empty promises. And soon he's going to deny Jesus. Thomas is confused and doubting. He's flummoxed and panicky about something that surprised him. He he knows that Jesus is going away, but he, he needs to know what steps do I take. And then Philip rises up. And he may not realize it, how demanding and, and how controlling he wants to be. He wants the ultimate reveal. Show me the ultimate and then I'll believe you. But soon Peter will deny and Judas will betray. James and John will vie for privilege and power in the court of Jesus. The cohesion of the apostle, apostolic band will start unraveling. And Jesus predicts that they'll all be scattered. So this passage comes in a great deal of trouble. And let's not forget the Pharisees who were losing their power and they were desperate. They were crazy with jealousy. People were following Jesus and they couldn't stop them. They tried to squelch him. They tried to accuse him. Many times they they tried to take him, but they could not do it because of the crowds. And then Jesus healed a blind man. Remember the story? He healed a blind man and they they brought him in and said, "Who, who did this for you and why did it happen? And the blind man said, well, I'm... Jesus did it. They didn't like that answer. So they called the blind man's parents in. 
And they cross-examined them. And they said, listen, you better stop talking about this or we're going to cancel your Twitter account. You will no longer be on YouTube. You can't be found on a Google search. And in the first century, they used to call that the synagogue. We're going to throw you out of the synagogue. And then Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A dead man came back to life, and then Lazarus began attending the Jesus rallies that were going on. And the Pharisees had this brilliant idea. I know what we should do. Let's go kill Lazarus. As if that would bury the evidence that Jesus has power over death. And then ultimately, they plot to kill Jesus. So there's trouble with the Pharisees. And don't forget, Jesus himself is troubled. In John 13, 21, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit because one of you will betray me. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read one of the most courageous acts ever in human history where it says that Jesus resolutely turned his face toward Jerusalem, walking into Jerusalem, knowing that he was walking into rejection, mob violence, torment, being hung on a cross and dying alone for the sins of the world. But he did it anyway. Jesus showed them the full extent of his love in that upper room, and the full extent of his love was not foot washing. The foot washing was symbolic that he would be a servant to the master, the servant who would give everything for the sake of his disciples. So we have this whole context of trouble, and Jesus knew that The disciples would be scattered. He knew that he would face the flash mob of the Jews and the the conspiracy of the leaders to kill him. And the weight of his mission was heavy on his shoulders. And it's in that context that he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he answers the three biggest questions from our hearts. I don't have a seven-point sermon, sorry, this morning. (laughs) Three big questions we have. And the first one is this. What is in my future? When you face trouble, isn't that the first thing we ask? What about the next hour? What about the next day? What about the next surgery? What about the next business deal? When I'm shaken to my core, what can I know about the future? Notice in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. The your is plural meaning all of those who are listening and all of us who are reading this. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. The King James translates it mansions. It it most literally is dwelling places. Or the way we would say it, there's a home for you. Joanne and I just got to travel this winter. We haven't done this before. We... We escaped Minnesota during the biggest snow season (laughs) that you've had, so don't hate us for that, but we were in warm places. Uh, We drove 6,000 miles, ultimately ended up in the Keys of Florida. We were by warm water and beautiful places. We were housed in hotels and homes along the way, and and, uh, the hospitality was wonderful. But as we drove up from from Houston to coming, coming home, we get to about Albert Lee, and we start counting the miles to get back home. There's nothing like being home in your own place. 
And this is what Jesus is saying. What is in my future? Your future is to have a home with him. He says, I'm going there, and this troubles them because they feel like he's going and he's going away. But he immediately says, but I will come again. Now, immediately, our hearts and our minds jump to heaven. Well, Jesus is going away to prepare a home for me in heaven. And that's true. It says it right here, a place for you. Or we look at this passage and he says, I'm coming again. We think about the second coming. He's, he's coming again to take us all to be with him. And that's also true. But there's a much more immediate aspect of Jesus coming again to them. And that is within three days, after I have gone away to prepare a home for you in the heart of God, through the cross, I'm coming back to you and you will be with me. And one of the truths of this passage is that Jesus is not only preparing a place for us, but that heaven is also a person. You will be where I am. What's heaven going to be like? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what the Lord has for us. We have this weird view of heaven. It's all running around on golden streets. And I know that's metaphorical, but we, we think there's these little fat cherubs playing harps and we have to put up with all that. Heaven's a wonderful place, but get your mind on this, apostles. It's me. I'm going to take you to myself. You will be with me. I am coming again for you in three days after the cross and the resurrection. I'm coming to bring you home which is to be in me, and I will be in you. How we need this word in our world of trouble. Have you ever been gut-punched where just everything you expected was torn away from you? Several years ago, a friend of mine was developing a couple of hundred acres of land for a housing development. Hundreds of homes were planned. This was his great enterprise of his life, and lots of money could be made. They'd put in the infrastructure, the sewer and the water. The streets were there. The lamps, the street lights were there. And at the closing table, when they were getting the final closing on all of this, his one main investor backed out. And everything crumbled in an instant. Houses were incomplete. Crews weren't paid. And instead of making all this money and, and employing all these people, he ended up in an avalanche of lawsuits for years. What do you do when you are gut-punched like that? What happened with my friend is that he found his only comfort was Jesus. In the dark and lonely watches of the night, though he had always had a faith, he found Jesus is my friend. He's my only friend, but he's there. He's there every minute, every hour, every day, every night, and he walked him through that. What's going to happen in my future? Perhaps you have been betrayed in your marriage. I've sat at ringside for many situations like this. You're shattered with an affair or guilt or sorrow. Maybe you're the betrayer. And suddenly everything you thought was solid is now broken. 
And so many times what I've heard from folks is that Jesus was there. He was there for me. He came for me. He kept me company. He walked me through it. He brought us into healing. Maybe your world has been turned upside down. That, that long-awaited child is on the way, and you've prepared the nursery. You've got the changing table. You have 10,000 little ablutions. You're going to rub on this little baby body. And you're waiting this, and suddenly the baby comes at 24 weeks. And suddenly you're wondering, will his eyes work? What about his lungs? What about his heart? What's happened to our great hopes? And suddenly this bouncing infanthood that you'd looked forward to, this bouncing baby that you'd looked forward to cuddling is now an ongoing rolling medical emergency. I've walked with many parents through things like this and what they've discovered is that Jesus is right there with them. When all of this is taken away, when the desperation and the trouble is so thick you don't know what to do, when you're feeling fearful and alone, Jesus is there. What is in my future? Yes, if you're a believer in Jesus, heaven is out there. Yes, it's waiting for you. If you're a believer in Jesus, yes, the second coming will be yours and you will rise to meet him. But he's even closer than that. He is here right now. What is in my future? Jesus is in my next minute. He will walk with you. He will love you. In chapters 15 and through 17, Jesus talks about abiding in him. And he promises the Holy Spirit. And he talks about our oneness with him. And he says this to us because he tells us the truth always. He said, you are going to live in an onslaught of unthinkable meanness and hatred. Because I've told you, in this world, you will have trouble. But when the trouble comes, when the doubt and the fear and the shame and the desperation come, it's not only heaven that I look forward to, it's him that I look forward to. And what does he say to these apostles who are listening to him? He simply says, trust me. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And that word literally means trust me. We have a hard time with that word because we've been misled and lied to so many times. But Jesus says, trust me, you believe in God. You believe God is just. You believe God is merciful. You believe God is forgiving. Believe also in me. And here's why you can believe. Because in just another day or so, you're going to see me walk that road to Calvary. And I'm going to give my life. It will not be taken from me. I'm going to give my life for you. Trust me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to make a home for you in the heart of God by bringing the final sacrifice for sin. So the Father and myself, speaking of Jesus, we are conspiring to create a cosmic adoption agency And you can come and live in our home with us. Jesus said, I am that home. The Father's house is not only a place, it's a person. So suspend for a moment your desperation. Suspend for a moment your demand to have an answer right this minute. And trust me.
I will be here for you. And in just a very short time, he says, I'll be coming back to you. Trust me. Well, there's a second question that is asked immediately in this context. And the question is, how will I know the way? How do I know what way to go? And in verse 4, it says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is dislodged from his stability. He's flustered and he's flailing around for some kind of an answer. And uh, he doesn't know what to do. He, he tends to be temporarily forgetful of all that he's learned. I've studied in the past something called lost person behavior. That when people get lost in the wilderness, what they tend to do is, is they tend to go faster in the direction that they think is right. Uh, they, they tend to discard some of the equipment that they should be keeping because they think it will make them lighter as they go. But the main thing they do is they have an imaginary map in their head. They don't believe the map they're looking at. They disbelieve the compass that is true. And they say that mountain should be over there because that's where I think it ought to be. And they just deepen their lostness. This is where Thomas is. His disequilibrium says, well, I'm going to ignore the compass. I'm going to discard the equipment I've collected from Jesus. I'm going to forget all that he's taught me. And Thomas swallows the the spider to catch the fly. He reverts to something that he thinks will help him. And Jesus, what does Jesus say? Thomas, you can know me. You can know me. And when you know me, you know the way. Here's one of our favorite verses for evangelism, for showing people the exclusivity of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A wonderful verse to lead somebody to the exclusive salvation of Jesus Christ. But it's also a great verse for those who are already following him because he is the way. When you're confused... When you're wondering, how do I know the way? Put your hand on his shoulder. Walk behind him as he leads you through the fog. Jesus said, I am the way. The destination is the life that I've promised you, but I'm the way to that life. Trust me. This is what he's saying to Thomas in his doubt. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is experiential knowledge. It's not reading a book about astronomy. It's going outside and looking at 10,000 stars. It's not reading a novel about love. It's actually experiencing your first kiss. That's a different kind of knowledge, wouldn't you say? This is an experiential knowledge. You can know who he is by simply following him. We come to chapter 21 in the book of John, and we're talking about Peter who has denied Jesus, and he's gone back to what he knows how to do, which is fishing. He's back in his fishing boat. He's living a no-risk lifestyle. He wants to be obscure. He wants to play small. He just wants to get away from his failure. And Jesus comes looking for him. And you're familiar with the story. Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do, Do you love me? And Peter three times says, you know I love you, Lord. You know I love you. You know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then the last thing he shows him, he says, follow me. Peter, just follow me. How do you know the way back from your failure and your shame, Peter? 
just follow me. I want you to follow me. And then Peter is told by Jesus how he's going to die, that either he will be so decrepit and aged that people will take him where he doesn't want to go, or he'll be manacled and imprisoned, and the same thing will happen, and that his death is going to glorify Jesus. And Peter does what I might have done. He looks at somebody else. He looks across the the way, and he looks at John, and he says, "But, but what about him? He's living a bumpless, perfect life. Why do I have to be living the life that I'm living? And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. When we compare our lives to someone else that we think has it so much better, when we don't accept the way that we're to follow him in our life, we miss out on the fellowship, the grace, the strength, and the power that Jesus wants to give us. He's given you a particular struggle and trouble in your life. And if you don't have it this morning, you'll have it by tomorrow morning. You'll have it sometime this year. You will have trouble. How do you know which way to go? It's very simple. Just follow him. I am the way. I am your truth. I am your life. Don't flail. Don't come unraveled. We live in a world that is rapidly unraveling. I mean, if you can keep up, you tell me how. It is amazing what's happening. The loudest voices with the emptiest heads and the darkest hearts have the microphone. And many times our expectations are shattered. We are so disappointed in our our way of life is being disrupted. Or someone you love is gone or something you had believed in has been ruined. We need hope. We need a rock. And we can't wait for heaven. We need it now. Jesus says, you can know me. Look at the cross. Everything about my character, everything about the character of God is displayed on the cross. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus voluntarily laid his life down. He didn't say, I've come to give you a new cornea so you can see, or a new lung so you can breathe, or a new kidney so you can survive. He said, I came to give you my life. A substitute of my life for your life so that you can live. And you can know me by seeing the cross and seeing what I've done there. And that is your hope and your rock. You can know this. Well, there's a third question here that's asked. And it's asked again by one of the apostles, one of the disciples. How can I know the Father? Philip wants to know, what's the ultimate vision? What's the ultimate eternal fact and, and, and absolute that I can know? How can I know the Father? He's triggered by this in verse 7 when, when, uh, Dave, uh, when Jesus is, is answering Thomas. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. I don't think Philip realized how demanding he was being right there. Listen, he's, he's saying, listen, I have the criteria that you need to answer for me, and, and, that'll be, and then you will have done your, done your job. Then you will have taught me well. The question is, how can I know the Father? Philip wants kind of a special reveal. He, he wants the uh, 
private screening, the insider knowledge. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, you see me. You see me, and when you see me, you see the Father. It's amazing that Philip didn't understand this yet. It's, it, it's incredible how patient Jesus is. But when you see me, Jesus said, you see the Father. There's no distinction. There's not some secret mystery I'm, I'm keeping you from about knowing the Father. You're not going to be secretly judged by some other criteria. If you know me, you know the Father. If you see me, you see everything in me that you will see in the Father. There's some wonderful Trinitarian theology here that God is, the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. And in chapter 16, they're going to talk about the Spirit of God coming in this Trinitarian way. But this is much more personal than just a theological treatise. This is, this is Jesus saying, there is no unfinished business that I haven't told you about. There's no mystery about you being somehow judged by something you didn't understand. If you see me, you see everything about the Father. He says this in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So when you see Jesus, you see the eternal heart of God. When you see Jesus, you see the completion of a plan that began before the foundations of the world. When you see Jesus, you see the loving redemption that was on the heart of the Father to send his own son to die for our sin. And it's not just using our ocular apparatus, our eyes. It's seeing with the heart of faith, seeing the authority. And Jesus said, seeing the works, seeing the lengths that the Father has gone to, to come to us. And where do we see this ultimately? We see it on the cross. These are the works that Jesus is talking about. Not only the miracles and the the settling of the tempest and storms, not only the healing of the blind man, but he's saying, believe in the works. And the ultimate work he does is there on that cross, on Calvary, in history, in a locatable place with multitudes of witnesses. He dies on a cross and you see the heart of the Father in Jesus. What looks like defeat in the next 24 hours is actually the opposite of what it appears. That instead of evil defeating goodness, it's goodness thrashing evil. Instead of Jesus being defeated by Rome, Jesus is crushing all earthly and demonic powers on the cross. And instead of Jesus being a victim, he is the victor on the cross. See me. You see the Father. And so that brings us to one of the favorite verses we have in all the Bible, John 3.16. For God, the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father and Son conspiring To make this cosmic adoption agency something that comes after you and me. To bring us home to him. Oh yes, we believe that Jesus is coming again. Yes, we believe there's an eternal home for us that is so glorious we can't even describe it. But Jesus is saying... 
there's also a much more immediate sense of my presence I want to give to you when your hearts are troubled. I want to give you myself. Trust me for what you can't yet see. Suspend for a moment, for a day, your demandingness for an answer. And trust me, walk with me. Know me by my word and my character. And see the works that I've done. Trust me in all of this. As Jesus gives this promise to his disciples, he's also giving this promise to us because it's a plural and it means all the disciples, whoever have decided to follow him. And I hope that that includes you. If you've ever wondered if God cares for you, then look at the cross. Everything Jesus wants to tell you about the Father's love and his personal mission is on that cross. So this week, I want to invite you not just to come to services, but open your heart to Monday, Thursday, communion that Jesus had with his disciples on Thursday night. And then Good Friday, remembering the atonement, the blood shed, the violence done, but it was really for the redemption of the world on Good Friday. And then obviously on Saturday and Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which is the smackdown against all evil powers and death itself to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and our hearts will not be troubled because we see him in action. Let's pray together. Our Father, we can hardly imagine what Jesus came to do and why he was, how he was sustained in his courage to do so. But Lord, we worship you. We worship you, Jesus. We give you praise and glory that you are here for us. We ask you, Lord, to enter into our trouble and help us not to reflex and react, but to trust you, that our hearts will run to you, that we will be sheltered and encouraged and counseled and forgiven by the Savior who loves us. We give you praise and honor and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.